0: Alright guys, Abel here again, and I have a bit of a surprise for you for this week. Last week I said that the volume month where I'm interviewing the best experts out there about the question of training volume and how much should we train to make the best gains possible has ended, but I actually decided that I would get on two more guests to expand this awesome theme month, and this time I have Brian Miner on who is one of the most knowledgeable people out there who can tell you stuff about training volume and we also talked about questions like progressive overload whether getting as strong as possible is the best way to get as big as possible whether it's ever okay to get a slowing of your strength gains when you're adding in more volume and many more stuff like this. So this interview is going to be one of the most informative ones I've ever done. And I think it's going to help you tremendously in setting up your training protocols for the best and most efficient progress possible. So I really hope that you will dig this interview. And if you're new here, this is the Sustainable self Development Podcast where I'm bringing you the top tier, most up-to-date evidence-based information about fitness, getting bigger, more muscular, and leaner, but packaging it in a way that you can actually implement it to your lifestyle in a realistic way that doesn't require you to quit your job and not have time for anything else in life. I have new episodes like the one you're going to hear now coming up every week or two. So if you're interested in topics like this, then feel free to subscribe to this podcast and binge listen to past episodes that I put out. And also, if you want me to keep doing interviews like this in the future, then you would really, really, truly help me out if you could hit a five-star rating on this podcast podcast because that will help me rank higher on itunes and on other podcasting platforms and it will make it easier to get on the most awesome guests each and every week so that i can keep making these interviews for you so that would be my big request for you today and with that let's get into today's show all right everyone uh thank you for tuning in today i'm really excited to talk with brian miner whom I wanted to have on the podcast actually for a long time. And anytime I see that there is an interview out with him by someone, I immediately download the interview and listen to it because he is very thoughtful. And I thought that he would be a great addition to the volume month that I just did recently and interviewed some of the best experts out there. And uh, he has some really cool thoughts about volume and progressive overload and how we should be thinking about these things. So I think this will be a great discussion. So Brian, thank you so much for taking the time today.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to to chatting about all this.
0: Yeah, awesome. So uh, let's uh, jump right in, I guess. Um, And so maybe start out with what is causing muscle growth? uh, Because that is is a hot talking point in uh, fitness circles or science-heavy fitness circles, at least. So some people or swearing by the notion that progressive overload and adding weight to the bar and getting as strong as possible is what's driving muscle growth. Other people or I guess, more so in the evidence-based sphere or talking about volume as the primary driver for muscle growth. Uh, Let's just start out here generally. What is your thinking on this manner?
1: So I I think the short answer is all of that is driving muscle growth. Um, You know, the, the biggest... I think an issue with the the debates whether it's load progression or volume that's driving hypertrophy is the fact that oftentimes people aren't speaking the same language or operating on the same def off of the same definition of what volume is. So you know, m- most people know generally you know volume is the total amount of, of stimulus or work that you're you're doing, um, and the, the quality of that being when it comes to hypertrophy, it, it's volume that's occurring under full fiber recruitment, and that's producing high amounts of tension on those, mu- those active muscle fibers. So when it comes to just saying arbitrary volume drives muscle growth, like you, you could do a lot of volume, you could do a lot of sets that are very suboptimal and still have high amounts of volume um, that drive that muscle growth. So uh, the intensity is, and is, I'm sure you've talked about before, I watched um, the other interviews with this volume roundtable, and I think everybody was in agreement that it's, you know, the, the intensity, the qualitative aspect of the work in a relative sense is, is equally important to the amount um, of work that's performed. So based off of the research that we do have available on mechanisms, it does seem that mechanical tension is You know, it's the primary driver um, with muscle damage and metabolic stress still under debate if they have a directly causal role. But when it comes to mechanical tension, we need sufficient tension, um, whether that be, you know, as a result of the load on the bar being greater or force production needing to be maintained within a higher rep range. Either way, the force demands need to be sufficient enough to increase muscle fiber recruitment, and um, then we're you know accumulating volume under that recruited condition. Um, and so, when you look at volume or force and tension times time, it's it's really a term called impulse, just force times time. Um, if you were to to try to give it a general name, um, I think that that definition suits this. Is it would be greater impulses drive more muscle
0: growth right so essentially would it be a fair simplification to say that it's heavy enough or enough tension on the muscle and that being applied to the muscle for enough times basically so that would be the volume component and that is what is driving muscle growth
1: yeah so when it comes to intensity there's two different types of definitions or two formal definitions and that's absolute intensity and relative intensity so the absolute intensity is the actual load on the bar. And that's usually like when we describe percentage of one rep max, that's what we're referring to. Um, then relative effort is the you know, proximity to failure um, within a rep range and you know, RPE and the reps and reserve scale both serve as tools for that. And so when it comes to providing sufficient enough load to maximally recruit muscle fibers, it does appear that from the onset from rep one on intensities somewhere between like 80 and 90 ish percent, depending on the exercise and muscle group, that is where maximal muscle fiber recruitment falls on average from the onset of the initial rep. So um, if you were to do like a triple on a bench press and say that was you know, 90 to 92% of your max each one of those reps would be under full muscle fiber recruitment. Um, and then when it comes to the relative intensity side, you know, based on the size principle, we recruit larger motor units as we fatigue or the demand go- increases. And then um, as those lower threshold fibers fatigue, we have, we require, you know, we pull in more muscle fibers in order to meet that ongoing demand. So. The demand itself doesn't change, but as we fatigue, you know, in that case, we use fatigue to our advantage to uh, pull in more um, more muscle to to maintain that force output. And so in both cases, it's you're getting to the same outcome, and that's placing tension on high threshold fibers for a sufficient amount of time. So, yes.
0: Right. So uh, there is a lot of directions we could go in, so we could explore the progressive overload side of things first, or we could go in the volume direction first. But maybe uh, just to have some practical uh, takeaway for the beginning of this podcast for people, would it be fair to say that when you're doing a set, Uh, From the moment where the set starts to feel heavy, like when the bar starts slowing down, when you start kind of grinding, that's the point in the set where growth is starting to get stimulated, basically, whatever the load is and whatever the rep range is.
1: Yeah, I think that's, that's a fair statement in terms of like the, the efficiency, the return on investment is greater for those reps. Um, it's not to say that lower reps don't provide any impact. Um, I mean, if you're doing a 30 rep set, like the first handful of reps that, yeah, they're, you're not going to get a growth stimulus out of that, but, um, it, it's not like there's, there's a point at which, you know, growth turns on. Um, but yes, usually in a relative sense, Um, You know, the the suggestion is take it within, you know, three to four reps in reserve and you'll be, you know, at full muscle fiber recruitment at that point. And you'll be contracting at a slow enough speed to create high amounts of
0: tension on the fiber level. Uh, Do you think uh, this is kind of a side question? Do you think, and I'm mainly asking this because actually I had this uh, discussion with someone not long ago. Do you think there is a... a qualitative uh, difference between a set that you take within four reps shy of failure or one rep shy of failure or three reps shy of failure one rep shy of failure and this kind of comes down to this effective reps concept that once you start grinding once the reps start slowing down you, ach- you reach that point within the set where those high threshold uh, muscle fibers are getting recruited so that's where the real good stuff starts happening so would it matter if you do more of these grindy reps at the end of the sets, or you're just reaching that point and then you're stopping there.
1: That's a, that's a great question. Um, and you know, we look at studies that compare training to failure, uh, versus volitional fatigue. And usually that ends up being, you know, at least two, three reps shy of failure. And the, the differences in outcomes are like, they don't exist. So it, it's the conclusion being, you know, there's, there's no distinct advantage of going to ha- Failure from a hypertrophy standpoint versus leaving a couple of reps in the tank. Um, and, and some of that could be the fatigue that's associated with, with training to failure and the, arguably, the, the muscle damage that often coincides with that. Um, but I think if you were to look at the study over a longer period of time, that some of those differences may shake out. So if you had a group that was, or in, in a study, if subjects were stopping at Um, you know, three reps shy of failure, or let's say four reps shy of failure versus two, and they were matched for sets. You know, in the short term, I don't think you're going to see much of a difference. But, you know, perhaps over a longer duration, and enough subjects, you know, that that difference could reach statistical significance. So I I think when we look at, you know, the concept of effective reps, it's, there's two components of that, um, which I touched on the, the reps under full recruitment. And if you think of, You know, what I said with 80 to 90 percent, if you're looking at a muscle group or a movement that the active muscle groups are reaching recruitment at 80%, that that can be anywhere from like an eight rep max to, you know, 12 to 15, depending on the person. Um, And so if you look, look at it from that perspective, you may be reaching maximal fiber recruitment a lot sooner than you think. But that's where the force velocity relationship comes into play. And it's not that those reps aren't contributing anything. It's just their their overall contribution to the stimulus is is much less than those reps that are contracting at a, a slower speed. So you know the force velocity relationship is is telling us that you know as velocity or contraction velocity slows there's greater magnitudes of force production on the fiber level so as um, those high threshold fibers fatigue they're going to be contracting slower and there's going to be higher degrees of cross bridging occurring and there's going to be more force produced um, within that fiber and more tension placed on that fiber as a result so there there's a recruitment aspect and then a um, contraction speed aspect and, um, the, the most potent reps are, are going to be the ones that, you know, kind of meet both criteria. And then you also have to consider, um, with fatigue that bar speed and velocity as a whole is going to be going down. So we talked about the time component. Um, you know, it's just, it's not just tension. It's the, the time exposure to that level of tension on the fiber level. And when we look at, you know, a rep that's one rep shy of failure versus four, that rep is going to be, it's going to be a longer repetition as a whole. So on a rep-to-rep basis, the hypertrophy stimulus does get greater. I just don't think it's been teased out um, in research because of the, uh, the statistical issue there and the duration component of the study. But um, it's not. Adv- I'm not advocating training to failure um, because you do want to manage the fatigue aspect and manage recovery and muscle damage. In addition to that,
0: yeah, and and I think uh, it's almost maybe it's not even the best way to compare training to actual failure, like true failure when you cannot overcome the the gravitational pull plus the weight that you're trying to lift. Uh, but training maybe one rep shy of failure and comparing that to training four reps shy of failure, because like you said it might not come out clearly in a couple of studies, but if you just think about doing that chronically over years and uh, those hard reps over time, I guess, add up to something meaningful.
1: I would would hypothesize they do.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So cool. Then let's um, talk a little bit about the progressive overload side of things a little bit, because I think uh, I haven't quite heard it from anybody else phrased so well, what the true role of progressive overload is. Because the way most people tend to think about it is that you're going to the gym, and you're lifting something heavier than what you did the last time. And that's extra stress compared to what you're adapted to is what's triggering growth. So you have to keep lifting heavier and heavier to keep triggering that adaptive response, I guess. So uh, but it's kind of the, the situation is almost the reverse in reality, or at least it seems to be the case. Uh, right.
1: Yeah, it's it's a topic that's it's misunderstood. But fortunately, like the, the misunderstanding surrounding it. Um, it it doesn't really prevent people from making progress. Like whatever way you think about it, you're going to be heading in the right direction. Um, Although there are some, um, you know, you may be able to optimize it by understanding what's really going on. So, you know, when I first was taught of progressive overload, I think everybody hears the story of like Milo of Croton, the Greek wrestler that carried the calf and picked it up and carried it every day until it became a bull. So the idea being, um, obviously it's a, it's a, you know, just a fable, but the, uh, the, the action of adding load over time in your body, adapting to that, um, is, is what drives people to, you know, add load to the bar. The idea that, you know, it's providing a stimulus that your body isn't used to, and it's calling in the adaptive resources to cope with it. Um, and, and some of that's true to a point, but if you're able to perform, anything in the gym successfully, that's, that's because you are, I mean, it, it sounds obvious, but that's because you currently are, that's within your current capabilities. Like, so you are adapted up to that point already. Um, and so, you know, adding weight to the bar, it's, it's more of an adaptive outcome from successful overload previously, rather than a requirement for subsequent overload. Uh, and, uh, you know, one way to, to think of this is, you know, as you as you get stronger, as you provide an overload stimulus, um, and and that in itself can be defined a number of different ways because I mean, the formal definition of overload is the progression of the training stress over time. Um, But when you look at something like hypertrophy, the, the goal is at the end of the day, you know, in that for that post exercise period, you want protein synthesis to exceed protein breakdown, we're creating we're chasing overload to ultimately achieve that outcome. But that outcome is not dependent on progressing the training stress in the short term, like over time, you will look back and see like, yes, I'm doing more now in order to, to get meet that objective. But like within a block, there's not a requirement or session to session even, there's not a requirement to do more than you did last time. So, um, and, and the reason for that is, you know, if, if that were true, that would mean that, you know, in order to increase synthesis beyond, you know, ahead of breakdown or beyond the levels of breakdown, you would you would need to do what you had just done and more. Um, and, and that's, you know, it's, it's not how it works. Uh, because we respond to to things on the um, fiber level, and when we look at fiber recruitment, um, you know, if if you're recruiting a fiber, placing tension on it, you're you're going to get some type of synthetic response. But the amount, the magnitude of that, that's how you accrue more of it with increased sets. And so, as you get stronger. And you would start to quote unquote adapt to the to the training what happens when you grow muscle is you know you oftentimes you grow more myofibrils in parallel with the muscle fiber so more fibers are added um, or myofilaments are added and there's more myosin heads interacting with the actin and so you, you get greater levels of force production within that the existing fibers so um, what that means is those fibers are able to to generate more force um, than they were before. And so what's occurring is that level of you know, maximal fiber recruitment or the point at which you have to go to optimize your, your progress, that, that threshold is going to increase as a result of adaptation. So your capability increases. And so now you have to keep up with that increased capability. Now you have to chase essentially that threshold the next session or down the line in order to have productive training. Um, and so it's it's performing up to what you're you're currently capable of doing rather than providing a stimulus that you're not adapted to and then like having a defense response to it. Does that make sense?
0: Absolutely. So, so essentially what we are trying to do is adjust the weight on the bar to make sure that when we are going there and trying to lift that bar, it is still heavy. It is still challenging for us. Yeah, and so for people that are now scratching their heads, let's just make an illustrative example. If last week I went to the gym and I bench pressed, let's say me, I bench pressed 120 kilos for 10 reps. I didn't do that, but let's just say, Uh, I I almost said 80 kilos, but then I changed my mind quickly. (laughs) (laughs) So let's say I did that. And then next week I'm coming back and I'm bench pressing once again, 120 kilos for 10 reps, I think I said. So same weight, same amount of reps. Can I still grow from that load?
1: I think you can, depending on where you were. Say that initial set was 120 times 10. At a nine RP or one rep in reserve, and then the next time you went in, say it was 120 kilos times ten, but it was at a you know eight reps in reserve. So you you have progressed because the set is now easier, but you're still taking it to a point where you are meeting those criteria of full muscle fiber recruitment and you know fatiguing enough that's producing high amounts of force um, on the fiber level. So you're still accruing a quote unquote effective reps in the second scenario even though you're doing the exact same thing but there will come a point where that will no longer be the case where you're you're going to be much better served to either perform additional reps to maintain the relative effort or increase load in order to keep that uh, keep yourself accruing similar amounts of effective volume
0: right um, so basically the only only way i would not grow from lifting the same load for the same amount of reps again is if i was in the luxurious position that i got so much stronger over one session that now it's like 6 reps away from failure
1: correct correct and i think that i think that 5 Threshold, You know, oftentimes people, and I, I believe Chris Beardsley is the, um, right. and he's a huge proponent of the idea, you know, five reps and beyond. Those are the, the growth reps. And I certainly think those are the ones that contribute the most to hypertrophy because they're contracting at the slowest speeds. But I I also, I I don't think there's just a a cutoff point there. Um, I think it's just a, it sees a more gradual increase. Um, You know, the the slope of the line is steeper once you get to that point, but it's not to say that the reps below that are providing nothing in my opinion. Um, But it's still, it's still a, a very useful, actionable way to conceptualize the idea of effective volume though um and, and if you're starting to drift below that line um then you you should probably increase you know make sure you're increasing something in order to to stay there um, and in your example, I wouldn't even say that. I mean, that's not something I would advise anyway, like just because you can get away with maintaining growth with the same um, reps in same weight, like if, if you're capable of you know, keeping pace with your rate of adaptation, then you know, assuming health or connective tissue isn't an issue, you know, why wouldn't we?
0: Yeah, I think the only part when that can become relevant is where many times sorry, people can get tripped up in that. Often the barrier that is preventing you from adding low to the bar from one session to the next is not not down to the fact that you didn't progress. It's actually down to the inherent limitation in the increments of the equipment that you're using yeah so you might have gotten stronger by one percent but if the smallest increment you can add is going to progress the weight by two and a half percent then it's going to seem like you didn't progress whereas you did it's just like you cannot microload it by that small of an increment right
1: Yep, that's an excellent point um and i and i think on my blog at one point, I wrote an article on this, like the the idea of higher rep ranges um, being helpful for breaking through some plateaus because you, you can I mean, higher rep ranges are that's like the fractional loading version of volume, you know, you're you're able to, you know, you're going to be able to see incremental progress much more frequently with a high, within a higher rep range than you would, you know, set four to, you know, going from four reps to five, you know, that's a 25% increase in performance. Um, whereas going from 10 reps to 11 is 10%, you know, it's less than half. Um, so I, I think that can be useful both in terms of um, you know, breaking through some plateaus here and there, but also staying motivated, like being able to see progress more frequently and you know that, that's going to oftentimes prevent people from program hopping. Um, and it's not to say that you would never break through a plateau if you didn't use those. it's just you you are getting that extra little bit of stimulus that you may not otherwise be capable of. So it may come out as a wash in the long run, but you know if you can get an extra tiny bit of, of impulse rather than leaving you know half a rep's worth on the table, then that could be helpful over a long period of time.
0: Right. So um, to put up kind of a point at the end of this, uh, and you kind of mentioned in the beginning that for most people, it doesn't really matter how you think about it, because if like you're probably going to end up at the right place anyway. But can we say with a fairly high degree of certainty that the idea that getting as strong as possible in the 6 to 12 rep range is the the best way to get big, or that's not even the right way to phrase it, that it's not the driver of growth and that that is false?
1: Yeah, I think... I, that is false. I would say it's the it's the outcome of of growth and the outcome of adaptations, both in terms of you know, morphological and neurological adaptations that are occurring in the process of getting stronger. There,
0: right. And so I, I corrected myself. But then the 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 big question is, is is training so that you you're getting as strong as humanly possible in the six to fifteen rep range, let's say. Is designing a training program for that the best way to design a training program for muscle growth or and i guess that is where the whole volume question can come in because you could design a higher volume program for example with a lot more sets which might slow down your rate of gains uh, or rate of strength gains at least just because there is always that kind of lingering fatigue there what and um, I guess we can talk about whether that might be better for muscle growth. So, is training to get as strong as possible in the medium rep range the best way to get big?
1: I think it's conceptualizing it in—I mean—as a bottom-line recommendation, it, it, it's not—it's not wrong. Um, but there's nothing inherently special about that six to fifteen rep range outside of the fact that um, you know you're, you can accrue more effective volume with higher rep ranges. Um, and at least to a point like the if you do if we operate off that five reps in reserve and below is being quote unquote effective reps that would mean you know five reps and above would be you know on a set to set basis more or less equivalent in terms of hypertrophy stimulus when when it's matched for sets but the the practicality of of doing tons of, and that's assuming you're actually doing a 5RM. You know, usually if people are using 5RM loads, they're doing doubles and triples, you know? Um, so I think just when it comes to replicating sets and getting sufficient, like efficiently accruing volume and accruing that tension at the fiber level, you're, you're just gonna find yourself more often than not somewhere within that range, maybe a little bit above occasionally. Um, and I think there's, you know, there are ways to, uh, you know, gain strength and gain, you know, equivalent hypertrophy, but like in those lower rep ranges, I mean, but you would require some additional sets to offset the fact that you're compromising some of that um, effective volume. And I think you also brought up a good point with the fatigue. There's, there's a sweet spot when it comes to the amount of fatigue you're, you know, the cost associated with achieving the stimulus, and generally. Um, you know, it, in that moderate rep range is, is the highest return on investment um, for each effective rep. And I'm not sure uh, if you're familiar with Robert Frederick. He's, um, he has a website, I think it's strong, stronger.io with uh, UR instead of ER at the end of stronger. I believe that's the domain. Um, but he has an a article on an idea called Exertion Load, and it's it's trying to quantify or provide some type of numerical rating of stress and fatigue training stress and he uses like velocity drop off and the rate of velocity drop off across a set to help gauge that um and and it makes a lot of sense it's a really interesting idea and the the argument um that he kind of makes in his his article is you know that when you look at the stress imposed Usually, that eight to twelve rep range kind of wins out anyway um, when you account for the the recovery associated with uh, with achieving that stimulus um, so they, they're just in other words they're just easiest to recover from for a lot of people um and you know if i if i'm thinking like what is the if i had to do a set of squats like i'm not I don't, i'm not going to want to do a set of 20. you know anything 5rm and below like that's a little bit psychologically taxing and so usually you're you you fall in that range somewhere um, and i think it's just it's practical more so than necessary
0: right um now you know people people are interested in volume and adding volume adding more hard sets uh, to their training program because they understand that there is a strong relationship between training volume and muscle gains. So, you know, theoretically or it seems like up to a point if we add more of these hard sets, we can gain muscle faster. So, they are interested in sort of what are the green lights? Like when when is it okay to add more volume? Up up to which point is it beneficial? And one thing that many people will experience, and I know that I've experienced this myself, is that you may have a program with a moderate amount of volume, maybe it's, let's say, 12 sets, and you're making steady strength gains. You're able to add, I don't know, five pounds to the bar every week, maybe every 10 days or so. And then you're adding in more sets. Maybe now you're doing 15 sets and you're still making good strength gains. Then you add a few more sets over time. Now you're doing 20, maybe 22 sets. And it comes a point where, your strength gains are kind of slowing down. You're not adding weight to the bar as fast as you did before. The question is, what's what's happening in this case? I mean, or rather the better question is, up to which point is this okay? Like what is the point where, okay, your strength gains are now slowing down to a point where probably you're actually slowing down your rate of gains because you're not able to recover from this? Uh, how do you think about this question?
1: Oh, I, I think it's a very good question. Um... And I think what's a, what's occurring there is, you know, a simplistic term is just high amounts of training fatigue. Um, the, the stimulus side is you're you're fine there. Like you're you, you're not over. It's not like you're providing so much stimulus that the stimulus is insufficient or something like that. You know, it's not like it, it's the other side of the equation that's driving that decrease in rate. Um, so the stimulus, oftentimes, people they'll they'll do more. They'll see things slow down, and they're a little bit confused because, like you said, the the data is you know more is better up to a point. But I, I think in those cases, you know, you have to look at if you're genuinely not recovering, and the, the typical definition of that is a return to baseline performance, then if you think about that, you're, there comes a point where if you're not able to get back to baseline performance, you're not going to be able to to accrue any effective volume um because you're you know the the load on the bar is eventually probably going to be going down and you're probably experiencing a lot of muscle damage uh, which is one of the the big drivers of training fatigue or the big components of training fatigue and when you have high amounts of muscle damage you can limit central drive. Um, So central fatigue exists, especially in the, the or it's increased in the presence of muscle damage. And when you think of that, like if you're sore, really not that soreness always equates with muscle damage, but if you do have high degrees of muscle damage, but you keep pushing through, you're not going to be getting much out of those sessions from a hypertrophy standpoint, at least, because you're not even going to be able to tap into those high threshold motor units because central drive is going to be limited. Um, And that makes sense. I mean, from a, from a preservation standpoint, like you, you wouldn't want to, it can almost be thought of as a protective mechanism. You know, it's, if, if you have high amounts of muscle damage, your central nervous system may not you know, want to add more tension to those fibers until they are, um, you know, they are healed for lack of better words. And And we see that with protein synthetic research, uh, you know, early increases in protein synthesis when there's high degrees of muscle damage in place, they, they tend to prioritize that muscle damage repair before, um, but, you know, like the, the increases in protein synthesis, they're not correlated with muscle gain until the, you're beyond that point of muscle damage repair. So the early efforts are, are trying to heal you up before it thinks about building new muscle, or at least allocating all the resources towards that
0: right and so for the listeners that are now thinking like oh shit i had some sessions where i didn't progress i couldn't add weight to the bar i was stuck at the same amount of reps with a given weight or maybe i even lost a couple of reps and then the next session i progressed again like up to which point is that phenomenon acceptable like uh, yeah i see what
1: you're asking sorry i felt like i went off on a little tangent there but um so I, I do think I generally give it. Well, I subjectively assess. Okay, how am I feeling? If I feel that acutely, there's an explanation for that performance, like poor nutrition, poor sleep. If, there, if there's something the day of you know, stress that I know is contributing to that more so than you know simply not having enough adaptive currency to recover um then i'll keep it going like if, if if i if it's something i can manage um and so you know working with athletes it's it's important to ask them those questions because you know you can have trends in performance that indicate things are Going off the rails when really it's something that's an easy fix, and then you may find that training fatigue is you know, very well managed. Um, so I, I think I, I can't really give a bottom line recommendation. I would say usually if if I see a trend that's more than you know a few weeks, I that that's a that's generally a red flag, especially if if the athlete is um, you know th- those other behaviors are more or less consistent. Um, that that's a good sign, but point I'm trying to make is look at those other behavioral components before you make that adjustment. Um, Because it could be you're just you just need more calories, you need more sleep, and then like, bang, all of a sudden, you're you're right there making progress again. So the the volume tolerance is it is acute in nature. Um, And I think a lot of people forget that like the, the amount you can tolerate on a session to session basis is going to be ultimately determined by variables that occur after that session. So you know, you can go in and you may have been adapting to say your normal MRV is 20 sets and you're going, you do 15 sets for the week, but, um, your nutrition is really poor or your sleep is really poor. You're in a caloric deficit. That's all going to impact that level of volume tolerance because the the recovery window after training, it's 48 to 72 hours tops, you know, um, in terms of building muscle and, with that being the case, like you, you want to make sure that you're not biting off more than you can chew because of, you know, subpar nutrition and sleep, essentially.
0: Absolutely. Um, so one thing that you mentioned just now, and thank you by the way, that was an excellent uh, explanation. And uh, one thing you mentioned before was um, the idea of central fatigue, and I'm very, very interested in that topic because there is sort of two lines of thinking about that where one side is saying that it's all about the individual muscle fibers and their recovery curves and those are largely independent of one another so whether you're doing 10 sets or 5 sets or 30 sets for your biceps should not influence how much volume your calves can recover from and the other side is saying like well the individual muscle groups can probably, if you would just add their MRVs together, that's going to be more than what you can recover from systemically. And, you know, like based on the explanation of the the first line of thinking that it's all about the individual muscles, this whole central fatigue is more so just a boogeyman or boogie word that people use where they are describing things like psychological fatigue and cardiovascular fatigue like you know when you go into the gym and you're doing a full body training session and you're doing four heavy sets of squats i mean yeah you're going to be fatigued psychologically because one bad move and you're going to get injured that is taxing you mentally and then cardiovascularly that's going to be taxing your muscles are going to be fatigued acutely so what do you think about this whole topic because that's relevant where we are talking about things like specialization cycles where you're only bringing up the volume of one muscle group while putting everything else on hold so yeah
1: so that that's a really good question and honestly some of this it, it's questions i still have myself to a degree the what i've observed and i think a number of other people um have observed is there there is there's like a total volume tolerance systemically that that you have um it's it's and that's one reason why i don't like i don't deload people like one muscle group at a time or one lift at a time even though yeah there there are different curves for those you know different muscle groups um and you know fast and slow twitch fibers but there there is advantages of you know reducing volume across the board and giving yourself the opportunity to to recover everywhere because that that's only going to help you recover in other places subsequent to that so um the like one example is you know people that uh powerlifters that say they get injured they can't squat or deadlift oftentimes i'll notice that i don't have to change anything in their bench programming but their bench will go up and and that's obviously not a, a controlled trial but it's It's evidence that there is you know you're freeing up some of these resources to then go towards other areas, and so it's it's not so it's not solely the stimulus that you can place on on a muscle. It's like okay, i've I've now pulled back volume here so I can add it to this other muscle group. At times, you may be fine to just keep the the stimulus the same and pay down that recovery debt more effectively because you're not spreading it so thin. Um, so I, I've seen a number of athletes whose bench has gone up significantly in phases where they can no longer squat or deadlift for, you know, sit, you know, four to eight weeks. Um, and I've, I've experienced that myself. Like I had some knee issues and you know back in 2015 and i couldn't squat for a while and i i did see like that that was the fastest my bench has ever gone up but i didn't really change anything and i think uh i think a lot of people when they think specialization cycle they immediately think okay more volume for this muscle group and i'm not saying that that's not okay or not advisable but look at specialization on both ends. It's like you're specializing the stimulus by adding volume and you're specializing the the recovery by freeing up those resources with which you have existing. Um, does that answer
0: your question? Yeah, absolutely. And it's super interesting. Um, and yeah, in, in many of our cases, you know, not competitive bodybuilders just uh, people training and trying to get big, often you cannot really distinguish between these subjective factors. Like for example, when you're doing a full body session and you're starting that out with squats, yeah, I know that my chin-ups after that are going to be impacted, but it's because, yeah, I'm going to be a different person after those squats because, uh, you know, psychologically, cardiovascularly, in, in a lot of different ways. But what you just said about for a significant amount of time, you can squat and then your bench press increases faster. That's definitely a, a pretty good um, yeah case study for central fatigue or systemic fatigue or whatever you want to call it actually being a thing.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think, I mean, systemic fatigue, I think a lot of people when they say like my CNS is fried, they're their their definition of central fatigue is is more along the lines of you know systemic fatigue they just feel run down and wrecked um but central fatigue is i mean that's something that can be measured and that's that's specifically the reduced ability to recruit muscle fi- or motor units or to to go recruit as many um, like it's a, a decreased signaling to you know the peripheral system for recruitment, um, and so that that's occurring both like like on the the muscular level and the central like your actual nervous system because your your mus- the muscle if it's damaged is going to have that feedback, um, which is like the the mechanism behind how that works is beyond my knowledge, but um, you know the I think it's important to to tell the difference and understand that central fatigue is the way many people describe it. Like they're not using the correct definition of it. Like you can be run down and tired. Like I could have a terrible night's sleep. I could be malnourished and I could go into the gym and do a set to failure and probably still get full fiber recruitment, you know? Um, so even though I systemically just feel destroyed. So I would say it's a component of systemic fatigue and, you know, when you originally asked the question, I, I was a little bit confused because the yeah the idea of central fatigue with specialization cycles. I think it's because people are using the systemic and explanation for what central fatigue is. And so my example was was more speaking to the like you said the systemic side of adaptive resources. And that that's something like the general adaptation syndrome, the, the GAS model. That is one helpful finding from that is is we are, you know, that, that's where we can apply this to resistance training is we do have limited resources to, to cope with imposed stressors. Um, you know, and when it comes to overload, like what we just talked about, that that's the idea of, you know, providing a stimulus and providing like the shock and alarm phase, like that, that's not really what's occurring with with muscle growth. Um, So it it makes sense why we wouldn't want to use that model to explain the recovery from training, um, because when it comes to providing that stimulus, it's not something that your body isn't already capable of doing. Um, Whereas like the the central fatigue aspect, if you um, are centrally fatigued, you're not going to be able to, to provide a stimulus up to what you're capable of doing. And you're going to have those limited resources, which you know that model explains. And you know think of it as finance. Like you could you just have to have enough money to pay down different debts. and there's it's it's fascinating to to see you know how psychological fatigue can impact training. Um, you know the research that looks at higher degrees of stress, how it impacts not only the acute recovery, but also the long-term results. I mean, we have research that shows diminished uh, recovery in the acute sense when psychologically stressed, you know, beyond the other level, like a baseline level versus, and then we also have it showing like the actual bottom line outcome of long-term strength and hypertrophy is going to be blunted in, in the groups that are higher stress. So. I think that that's sort of the, the it's proof that there is some systemic component that needs to be addressed outside of just you know deloading a specific lift and uh, you, you still have debts that are increasing outside of just the muscle fiber.
0: Absolutely, thank you for that. And um, that sort of dovetails into um, the the concept of junk volume, and this is something that I find really fascinating because there is again sort of two lines of thinking. Uh, one is the quality over quantity idea and that is ideally when you're doing a set of eight for example on the bench press and after that ideally you would rest at least two minutes but preferably more like three four minutes at minimum make sure that the next set is really high quality you can lift the most load uh, for the most amount of reps that is possible and then there is the other line of thinking which says that the muscle fibers are responding to fatigue so it doesn't really matter if you're only resting one minute after that. And yeah, you may have to drop the load a little bit and you might not get in as many reps, but at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter cause your set is going to be hard after that. And you're going to recruit those muscle fibers, those high threshold motor units. So you're gonna get the same growth anyway. So it doesn't really matter how high the quality of the set is and this whole idea of junk volume thereby doesn't really exist. So what do you think about this?
1: Yeah, that's a it's a good question. I made some notes here. Like cover these. So the, uh, the idea of effective reps being equated, like even if you were to do, you know, a drop set, for example, and you go to failure on each set, like you're still getting arguably the same amount of effective reps as you would. And oftentimes even you know more. Um, but you know, depending on how many drops you do, but you are compromising the the load on the bar, and so that that does go back to um, the concept of, of impulse. And you know, we're we're concerned with the time of exposure, like the effective rep itself, as well as the magnitude of tension. And so you have to to address both of them um, when you have this you know this, these discussions back and forth, um, because there there is. It's not that it's not providing any stimulus, but the stimulus is significantly or can be significantly blunted with a reduction in load. And we have, you know, there's research, I believe they compared three sets, somewhere like eight to 10 reps um, versus a set and then three drops. And they found that the additional drop set, so they did four sets total, um, it offsets some of the the fact that we were using a reduced load and hypertrophy was you know, there's no difference between groups. And so that, that does show that you know when it comes to, to impulse, if you see that reduction in load, you may have to do additional sets in order to bring that that total up. Um, or to, you know, you can have effective reps, but that doesn't necessarily mean you have the same amount of effective volume. Um, you, you need to make sure that performance is as intact as possible, or at least pay attention to that when you're talking about overall effective volume, because the actual performance has a huge role in what that ends up being um and when it comes to like the short rest periods what's interesting is and it's something that you know up until a few months ago i hadn't hadn't really heard of and i saw um, chris beardsley and james krieger they both wrote about this a little bit the idea of you know using things like clusters and drop sets for the uh like heavy compound movements can y- you may compromise Um, some of that overall stimulus because you actually accrue more central fatigue doing those. You're using more muscle. And, you know, especially those high rep sets, central fatigue is more common with, you know, aerobic exercise than it is resistance training. And so the longer a set is, and, you know, the more sets, high rep sets close to failure, then y- you may be accruing much more central fatigue than if you did it for, you know, say you're doing leg press versus leg extensions, you know, um, and you're doing drop sets, you know, where you go 20 reps and then do drop sets from there, or clusters, whatever. Um, and so I think that's oftentimes, that, that's part of the argument of effective volume is, you know, if you're racking up volume in a state where you're not able to recruit the full spectrum of muscle fibers, then that volume... You know, it, it's not going to have much return on investment. In fact, it may work against you in terms of just overall recovery because you know now you're you're getting the fatigue associated with training to some degree with you know little benefit. So I think the idea is is certainly it's a valid point. Um, and I I wouldn't say I wouldn't consider really any volume is like useless volume, but there's there's certainly evidence and based off what we know physiologically you know some volume is going to be significantly more beneficial than other types of volume um and yeah i think that's the whole concept of, of junk volume but there is a central fatigue component to that
0: right um now the last thing i, I want to ask you about and uh, we can go into that in as much detail as you're comfortable with because we're approaching the hour market plus we lost some time in the beginning due to some logistical issues but um you know, the the idea of adding sets and adding volume over time. And uh, I don't know if you've heard my interview with Mike Isretel, um, but I guess you're familiar with uh, with his concept on this. And, you know, I th- like he makes a compelling argument, and I actually like the idea that we should progress volume just as the same way as we progress load and progress anything else in training to make it more challenging over time. The part where I'm always a bit caught up is the idea that, if week A, let's say this week, 15 sets is the optimal amount of volume for me, for which I'm getting a really good bang for my buck, then next week or the week after, it is no longer an effective vo- set volume amount for me, and I should be progressing that set volume amount so that the stimulus is more, um, that it would adapt so quickly. Um, that That's the part where I'm always a bit caught up, but I would love to hear what you think about that.
1: Yeah, um, I, I did listen to that and you know I'm pretty familiar with Mike and his work. Um, I have a tremendous amount of respect for, for everything that RPs put together. But um, you know I, I, to, in defense of that, I, I'm not sure I've heard the argument that you need to increase based off of you know the fact that you're adapting and require more um i think that's oftentimes how those recommendations have been interpreted but they they also if that were the case they wouldn't be advocating a range of volume to begin with so you have your minimum effective dose you have your maximum recoverable and you're working your way up that ladder trying to get you know the most out of your training at the end of it while dosing it carefully enough where you're you're not like if you went mrv or just below mrv for your entire block fatigue would become an issue very quickly um so it, it's less about you know the requirement to increase set volume and more about how do we optimize the amount of of stimulus or progress the stimulus in a way that we can get a little bit more out of what's available on those weeks um, and there's a big difference there because like you said the the idea of going from 15 sets and all of a sudden your body would adapt and no longer be able to progress off of 15 sets. That's that's not true in, in most cases, I mean, especially like in the acute sense, week to week. Um, and, and if it was, you know, going back to the conversation on overload and you know, the bottom line, protein synthesis and muscle break, you know, needing to be greater than muscle breakdown. If that adaptation did occur, that would mean either that suddenly your body is creating a much lower synthetic response to the same amount of volume, or muscle breakdown rates have, have gone up a lot. Um, and, and neither of those are, are likely in that time frame. Um, is, does that make sense so
0: far? Yeah, 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 definitely.
1: It's the traditional way of thinking with about pr- progressive overload that I think people get caught up on, is you need to provide it... Like, you have adapted to what you just did previously. Now you need to do more. And that's, it's simply not the case. Like you don't need to do more, but can you get a little bit more progress by doing more? Yes. So the way I I talk about, you know, the different types of overload, like adding reps and adding um, weight, those are both going to ensure, you know, this is within a set. Both of those are going to ensure that we're continuing to keep pace with our current capacity for performance. It's going to ensure that we're, you know, maintaining high levels of motor recruitment. Um, So it's going to make sure we're we're in the game, you know, so to speak, like we're actually producing some useful stimulus by keeping pace with that rate of adaptation. But then the dosing of the sets, that's almost like, okay, how much of this do we, can we get away with, or do we want at this point in the the training cycle? Um, And that's why those accumulation blocks um, can work is, you know, you're starting starting on the low end um, and working your way up gradually. And so you're not providing like a shock all at once with, you know, just blasting yourself with, you know, going from low amounts to high amounts and suffering a lot of muscle damage. It's a gradual workup in volume to, in an attempt to get the most out of the block as possible versus the necessity to increase volume based off adaptation. Um, So, you know, one thing that admittedly, like I I rarely program that way. you know, even though I, I understand why it is done because i'm not i'm not sold on the idea that it's it's more optimal to be honest um and i could be wrong i very well may be wrong here um but the idea of um you know say you say across the board you go 15 to 20 sets and versus 17 for all the weeks you know like picking that middle ground average like in the at least on a block to block basis, I'm not sure that that is going to be more beneficial. Like I think cycling volume is going to be likely beneficial over the long term, but I'm not sure it is over the short term um, because that would you know indicate very rapid adjustments in some of these um, like you know adaptive resistance that would require high amounts higher amounts of volume. And I do think that does occur over time, but week to week I, I don't I don't believe so. Um, the other reason I, I tend to lean away from that is um, the idea that you know you're you're sort of planning ahead when you're going to have the most uh, resources available, you know, so it's like if you start in week one and you plan to start fifteen sets and then by week four, you're gonna go to eighteen sets you know you better hope that by week 4 you're in a position to benefit from that amount of volume um, and it goes back to what I was saying earlier, it's like your, your ability to to recover from a certain amount of volume, like you, you're going to be limited by what you do in that post exercise period. It's like you're, you provide the stimulus and now you have to recover from it, because if you provide the stimulus and then you don't have the environment or the nutrition or the sleep, just recovery in general to to maximize the benefit of that, you may end up, you know, it may end up working against you. Um, because now you're, you're just accruing more fatigue, but it's, it's not accounting for the way a lot of people interpret this is it's not accounting for the the fluctuations in life, you know, like just, just out external stressors, you know, they may be greatest in the week that you end up planning your highest amount of volume. And if you know that, why would you do it and to mike's credit um i I feel that's that's what a lot of people think is it's this like static increase week to week um and i've heard him in that interview you had with him i mean he did state you know it's it is dependent on like we you still need to auto regulate it week to week like if you know you can't handle that amount of volume then don't do it it's just a a general guideline Um, you know all else equal or it it can be beneficial to, to escalate it but um, the main reason I, I don't plan it that way is just the, the fluctuations in stress and recovery that people can have. Um, like I know for me, it's, it's a roller coaster. You know, my, my recovery capacity, it's, you know, with two kids, it's, it, it's, uh, it's wildly variable. Um, and so the the idea of you know having a planned like okay this week I need to you know I, I have to be at my best it's not always feasible um, but then the the other component being I, I'm not sold that it's necessary in that short of a time frame. Um, But one one last point I want to make on that, um, and this is more like a pro to that that model, is sometimes what happens, and the same goes for percentages, you, you know, programming with percentages, is if you see something on paper that you are going to have to do ahead of time, psychologically, people often, you know, you hone up all of that behavior that is going to allow you to be, you know, benefit from that. So if I see on a piece of paper, a squat triple, you know, as a power lifter, you see a triple with a weight you haven't touched before, or you know, it used to be your two rep max and you're going for three, like you're going to make sure that you're in a position to to get that, you know. Um, so I think it does help behaviorally um optimize things, knowing that you have those things down the down the road or right in front of you. Um and, and I think that's oftentimes overlooked. And so that, that is that is one potential benefit of doing that.
0: Yeah, um, you pretty much uh, echo all of my feelings about that method, and yeah, you did a great job uh, defending it and uh, critiquing it as well. Um, So, Brian, if you have the time, I would have one final question, but if not, we can just wrap up here.
1: No, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Awesome. So that final question would be, we often hear that over the course of someone's training career, your volume will have to increase. And instead of theorizing over it, I would be curious, like if you're looking at your own training journey, training career, and maybe you're looking at some of your athletes or just people you've trained together with or known or communicated with, like what are some of the biggest or smallest differences that you've seen in someone's required training amount from the start to the to the later stages of their training career like did you for example have to increase your training volume over time a ton and then like what have you seen uh in others so let's start with yourself maybe
1: yeah that's it's a great another great question um and before i go into this i think in this case it's it's equally important to you know just to you know preface whatever your defense is um (laughs) wherever you stand on it with how you're defining volume because volume will increase over time assuming your performance increases.
0: Yeah, set volume and I guess so in this case.
1: You're you're you so yeah, so you're talking about set volume and I think that honestly I I haven't seen a ton of changes um with myself. I mean, I'm I I'm currently using and able to progress off of similar amounts of, of sets, um, you may see some increases. And I mean, in this, I, I haven't tracked my volume, my entire training career, but, um, you know, with other people, you know, I've, I've had power lifters that, you know, they're, I haven't had to change it or they've, they've been using similar set volumes, their entire training career. And they've gone from, you know, novice to, um, you know, very high levels. So it's, I, I think oftentimes what people forget when they say that is, you know, the the total stimulus per rep, like the the total recovery per rep, is going to increase as you get stronger so you know a set of 80 percent when you're you know squatting 225 even though your muscle fibers may experience you know less tension you're going to uh it's going to be a lot easier to recover from that systemically than if you're max or if you're repping out you know 500 pounds um so in a relative sense like your your fibers are are still seeing like a relatively similar stimulus um relative to their size but in an absolute sense I don't think oftentimes more volume, it's more systemic stress than people are able to handle in terms of set volume. Um, Because not only is each, like you're saying, okay, each set is going to be more taxing now, but now we're going to add even more of those sets. And so I think that's the reason why you see people that don't have these radical shifts or I haven't seen people with these radical shifts is because that they're still limited. It's more so because they're limited in what they can recover from um, rather than they're, you know, just deciding against increasing. I think oftentimes, like I've tried to increase and, you know, is I progressed here and there, but I find myself going back to previous amounts of volume simply because my capacity to recover hasn't improved. Like I'm still, I still have the same you know, biology outside of larger muscles and a more refined nervous system, you know? So, um, so yeah, I, I, I think, It can, but it's significantly less than a lot of people may think. I mean, the idea, it's like, okay, you were doing three sets early in your career. By the end of it, you're going to be needing to do eight. Like, it's that I have not observed, honestly. And it could just be coincidence that that's been the way, um, you know, my training career has gone and, you know, a lot of my athletes, but it's... uh, the fact that you're you're still achieving a stimulus on those high threshold fibers when it comes to hypertrophy, like the load is heavier in a relative sense. It's still a very similar stimulus, you know. Um, so I think what's happening there is oftentimes if people are having to increase that volume, it's because there's a, a blunted response to the training but then you become limited by what you can actually recover from. So I think there is some anabolic resistance that occurs that would benefit from increased volume, um, but oftentimes that's just not feasible because people are limited by just overall systemic recovery. So, it, that, and I think that's the reason, one of the big reasons progress slows, like if you could continually add volume and continue to recover from it, like I, I'm not sure adaptive rates would, you know, ever slow down, assuming you're willing to keep pace with the amount of impulse that it, requ- you know, those muscle fibers required.
0: Yeah. I guess there's the benefit of juice. But <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: exactly. yeah, and 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 just out of curiosity, what what are those numbers for you that you uh, didn't really go beyond or didn't have to go beyond to keep progressing?
1: I you know I'm pretty average when it comes to volume tolerance. I'd say most I, I can certainly still grow off of you know ten sets per body part. Like I don't have any outlier body parts that require exorbitant amounts of volume or, you know, just can barely recover in time for the next session. Everything is fortunately pretty even keel for me. Um, But I would say, you know, I'm spending most of my time in that 10 to 25 set range. If it's a isolation movement, I'll oftentimes or like biceps or triceps often push those a little bit. But um, yeah, I, I think once I get much above 20 sets, things clearly go south for me. Yeah. For the larger muscle groups.
0: Yeah, and I I think that will be pretty pretty useful insight for many people who want to start already you know, over like fifteen or even twenty sets because uh, you know they are no longer a novice, so they need to do a ton to keep growing. So if you can get by from as low as ten, then I think that can be very useful for people. Yeah, and I mean, you I
1: that interview with Doctor Mike too. I think he said yeah. his, his chest and triceps was ten, his maximum. So it's it's going to be. And you also you don't see Ray Williams doing seven sets of ten yeah. of squat. You know, it's like you the, you're the the fact that each set is rep is heavier limits the necessity to increase set count. So I think that's the biggest thing. As long as you're getting stronger, you don't need to add volume. And so that's, a big message I try to drive to people is take a take a reactionary approach to volume rather than a proactive approach you know if you're recovering and you're progressing, then you don't require more volume but if you're in a position where you can address more volume successfully, then it's probably not going to hurt assuming it's within your you know overall range of of recovery
0: absolutely uh, well brian i Ask you all my questions and uh, this has been an incredibly informative interview and I can't wait to publish it and share it with people because I know that they are gonna dig it a lot uh, as well so thank you so much for sharing everything that you've shared so uh, yeah please just let people know where they can find you and yeah all the resources you want them to check out
1: yeah um, yeah thanks for having me on it's it's always fun having these discussions and I always feel like I'm I'm rambling a bit
0: no 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 you were great they, they, they
1: they seem to dig them so um big thing I have coming up is the UEBC JPS Fitness is putting on in Australia, in Melbourne on June 28th through the 30th. It's the ultimate evidence-based conference, and I'll be speaking alongside a number of, of great um, speakers that I admire and have learned a ton from myself. So I'm very excited for that, and I'm actually going to be talking about progressive overload um, and some of the nuance associated with it and um, going into some additional detail there. So um, I would encourage people if they're interested in that to, to go to that but otherwise I'm on Instagram at bdminer and um, I have a blog myojournal.com uh, and yeah that's about it but uh, yeah I appreciate you having me on
0: awesome so I hope that you're not bitten to death by some spider in Australia and
1: uh... I hope not either
0: <laughs> awesome uh, thank you so much for taking the time today Brian it was an absolute pleasure yeah thank you All right, guys, I really hope you enjoyed this interview with Brian Miner, and if you did, then I would really, really appreciate if you could hit a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this. That will, once again, help me to grow this podcast and rank higher amongst other podcasts, and it will help me to get a more super awesome guest in the future, and I can keep making interviews like this for you each and every week. So if that is something that sounds good to you, then you would greatly help me out if you could give that five-star rating for me or however much rating you think I deserve. So that would be my big request once again. I hope you enjoy this interview. And with that, see you next time.